Good Sunday, South Valley Community Church. I'd like us to start by listening to some words of Jesus and reflecting on them. They're heavy. You ready? There's three verses. First, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Now think about it, reflect on it. What are the implications? If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Matthew 10, 26 through 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Today we continue our series entitled Lessons from the Early Church, and today we will look at the beginning of the persecution of the church. What begins here is something that will continue on for 2,000 years all the way up to the present day. Right now, as I speak, hundreds of millions of Christians suffer persecution. According to the ACN, Christians face persecution in roughly 145 countries. This ultimately leads to roughly one in eight Christians falling into the persecuted category. It is important to recognize the reality of this because it can be easy to lose sight of. A large part of the body of Christ suffers the pains of persecution. They are our brothers and sisters and they should not be forgotten. In today's passage, we will see the antecedents to all of this, things that will play out again and again throughout history, patterns that seem to reverberate throughout history's pages. So on that note, let's dig in into Acts chapter 3. We'll be mostly in chapter 4 today, but the context of 4 really takes place in 3. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried away, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms from those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So it's this incredible miracle taking place in front of a huge audience. And because of this, you can imagine everyone's witnessing someone who they've seen unable to walk for years and now walking on his feet. So there's a crowd drawing and Peter knows what he, he must do. It says that the crowd is filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. He knows he has an audience now. So of course, Peter is going to get up, take advantage of the situation and begin to preach the gospel. It says in verse 12, And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied, 
in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Now, a quick note on a repeating theme. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and it's going to continue through the book of Acts. When the first Christians preach the gospel, they tell the crowd, you are the ones who killed Jesus. And here it's, you killed the author of life. And remember from Acts chapter 2, there were people there from every nation. So they weren't even at the crucifixion event. But when the gospel was preached in the early church, there is this message that humanity as a whole is responsible. You can't just say a few evil men 2,000 years ago are responsible for the death of Jesus. It's the collective sins of humanity. So they make this, this accusation, you killed the author of life. And so Peter preaches the gospel, and then he gives the crowd an opportunity to repent from sin. And that's sort of the context for where we're going to really dig in in chapter 4. So Peter's preached the gospel. He said, you need to repent. And then we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Okay, so the, the apostles Peter and John get arrested. And it says that the people who come to do this are the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, this is, in other words, sort of the religious establishment, the religious elite of the day. The people who are responsible to teach Israel the truth, they come and say, we are not having this, and they arrest Peter and John. Now, there's something else that's fascinating here. It says that they were greatly annoyed at two things, and these two things lead to the arrest. And it's not just that they're preaching Jesus. It's two-sided. First, it says they were annoyed because they were teaching the people, and then they were annoyed because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. So the religious elite and establishment were bothered and annoyed because of the fact that they were teaching and then what they were teaching. It's not just the content. It's the very fact that they were teaching. Now think about this. Why are they upset that the apostles are teaching? Think about it. That they're the elite. They're the established. They're the religious establishment. They are the ones who have been given responsibility to teach Israel. And now all of a sudden, there's these other guys who the people are listening to, and so it's a threat upon their authority and their influence and their power over the people. So first, they're just upset at the fact that they are teaching, and then they're upset at the content of their teaching, namely that they're preaching Jesus. I mean, the, the religious establishment thought they, they had solved that problem. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. And now all of a sudden, the, mes the message of the resurrected Jesus is still taking place, and it's taking place in Jerusalem. And now people are being miraculously healed. There's a third layer to this. See, oftentimes we lump groups together in the first century Jewish world that ought not to be lumped together. So we may think that, oh, there's Pharisees and the Sadducees and there's no real big difference. But there, there is a big difference theologically. They weren't on the same page. See, the Sadducees who are mentioned here, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And they also believed that the resurrection was not anything to be looking forward to. In fact, there is no afterlife in their theology. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And so when the Pharisees and Sadducees would argue, they would often argue about the idea of resurrection. But what's unique about this situation is the first Christians are not only proclaiming a future resurrection, they are saying that in Jesus, the first resurrection of a human being has occurred. Jesus is the first fruits of that which is to come. And there's living, walking evidence of this reality. So the Sadducees are upset at the fact that the apostles are teaching and people are listening. They're upset about the content, namely Jesus, and they're bothered by the resurrection theology. Nevertheless, the scriptures say that the numbers of the early church are growing to the tune of 5,000 people. And the text goes on. On the next day, verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? So the high priestly family is, is mentioned here, the Sadducees, the scribes. This is in the first century world representative of the Sanhedrin. This is the highest ranking court in Jerusalem. Now think about this. Within a very short moment, the first followers of Jesus go from receiving the Spirit and preaching the gospel to being on trial before the highest court in the land. It's like the Supreme Court. And they're saying, whose power are you doing this? And in what name do you do this? And then in verse 8, it says this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected, the builders which had become the cornerstone. And this is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but first I want to draw attention to the fact that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said that when you go on trial, when you go to the courts, when you face persecution, the Spirit will give you the words to say. And those words of Jesus are being fulfilled in this, in this passage. Next, there's something interesting that Peter does. He says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. See, Peter and John are on trial, but what Peter does is he kind of flips it around. And he's saying, are we on trial for doing a good deed? A crippled man now walks. So it's almost reversing who's on trial. He's questioning the court's kind of ethical and moral standing. Are we actually on trial for healing someone who is crippled? That puts into question the moral and ethical standing of the court itself. It's, it's a brilliant move. And again, Peter says, uh, speaking of Jesus, whom you crucified. Again, this theme, you are the ones who killed Jesus. And lastly, of this section, I want to draw attention to verse 12. Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. This is where the tension always is. The exclusivity of the Christian message. From the first century all the way today, that's where the rub is. When Christians say, 
Jesus is the only name by which someone can be saved. It was a problem 2,000 years ago, and it is today. Nevertheless, the first Christians were insistent. Jesus is the one who can save. He is the only name that can bring salvation. It goes on in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, this is fascinating here. Peter is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. In addition, the court has said, they admit that a notable sign has been performed and we cannot deny it. Yet, they still do not put their trust in Jesus. They do not believe the testimony of Peter and John. In other words, even though the Holy Spirit is working through Peter, even though a miracle has been done and they're saying, we can't deny it, their hearts are so hardened. The depths of human depravity are on full display. Their hearts are so hardened, they say, you will not speak in this name again. And we don't know exactly why their motivation, but it's, I mean, it's, it's hinted out here. This is a threat to their authority and to their power. Rather than, than lose that, they are denying the work of the Holy Spirit and evidence that they're saying they cannot deny. That's the hardness of the hearts in this situation. They say, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. And this is how Peter and John respond. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God at what had happened. So it ends well. It ends with, with good news. Peter and John are faithful. They say, we're going to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. And at this point, they're actually let go. They're set free. However, this sets something in motion. And there's a trajectory now for the book of Acts and for the rest of history. The apostles are let go in this situation, but soon they will be imprisoned again. They will be beaten. They will be flogged. Many times they will be tortured. And ultimately, Peter will face death. Peter will ultimately go from this situation to being crucified. Now, there's historical reason to believe, and we, we have text saying this throughout history, that when Peter was going to be crucified, he said, I am unworthy to be killed in the same way of my Lord. So ultimately he was crucified upside down. But this is the trajectory that's set in motion. And in this story, we see these sort of uh, patterns of persecution that will not only play out through the rest of Acts, but again, we see them historically. And I want to draw our attention to just several observations that are found in this passage that we see sort of thematically resonate throughout the book and often through history. First, the apostles are not on trial 
for what they believe necessarily. They're on trial for what they're saying and teaching. That's an important distinction. It is not as if they are before the courts because they privately hold to the belief that Jesus lives. That That doesn't cause any friction. That doesn't threaten the powers at all. What's getting them on trial is the proclamation, the teaching of this. So it's not just what they believe in their heart. It's what they are saying with their mouths. They are confessing Jesus and teaching people in his name. Second, and and this flows out of the first point, they are boldly proclaiming it. It makes note that Peter is saying the gospel with boldness. There's not this timidity. He's not sort of ashamed of it. Hey, guys, I know it's a super weird message that, that Jesus died for the sins of the world. There's a boldness that comes from the work of the Spirit. And, and just like that first observation, it's not something that just stays inside of you. It's not something you, you keep in your heart and you remind yourself, although that's true. It's something that's externalized, that you boldly proclaim. And this connects to the third observation. The powers that hear this seek to silence the message because they can't control it. The the Christian gospel is spreading like wildfire in the book of Acts. And historically, it's spread throughout the, the entire world, and it continues to spread. And oftentimes, when the gospel is a direct threat to the powers that be, they try to silence it. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 4. Remember, it's not just the content of their message. It's the fact that they're teaching, and people are listening. They're being made whole. They're being healed. And they're turning to Christ rather than the religious establishment in this setting. A fourth observation from this is that Peter and John are not seeking approval from the world. They don't seek love of the world. They know that oftentimes the world will hate them, and they know this because that's what Jesus taught them. And so one of the things we have to recognize in a world that's hyper-focused on approval is that you cannot be a Christian and live for the approval of this world. Oftentimes, this world will hate you and judge you and look down upon you. And you should expect that because that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus was crucified by the world. So we can't seek to love the world. And the last observation is, is, is more of a big picture one that should be encouraging. In one sense... Peter and John, the apostles, are on trial. In another sense, it's the court that's facing trial. In an earthly sense, Peter and John are being questioned and examined. But in another sense, in a heavenly sense, it's actually the rulers who are on trial. Because ultimately, people who have been given the authority to judge and to judge rightly will have to answer to the one true judge. And so whenever Christians face persecution and trial, yes, it's happening to them, but also to the persecutors, they themselves before God are on trial because one day they will have to answer to him. And it's sort of the great equalizer. Everyone's going to have to give an account to the one true judge. Now, persecution has taken place in Acts chapter 4, and it continues on in the world today. And this is why we can never forget to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing severe persecution. 
And also for us today, we can say like, okay, I want to be, I want to be ready so that if the time came and I was put in a situation like Peter and John, I would boldly declare the name of Jesus. And oftentimes you can tell yourself, okay, don't love the world. Don't love the world. Don't do this. Don't do that. But the secret to all of this is not a, a, a negative action as in don't love this or don't seek approval. The secret to it is in loving Jesus with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. And when you love Jesus with that type of intensity, it won't matter as much to you if you are having worldly approval. So you fix your eyes on Jesus and the cross and what he's done for you. You set your gaze upon him and you love Jesus. And when you love Jesus more and more, you get to a point in life where you care less about these other things. And then, and maybe then, when you are brought before a situation where there's a consequence to faithfulness, maybe then you'll have it in you to do what is right. Not because you you so strongly stand against evil authority, but because of your love for Jesus, because of your love for him and what he's done at the cross on your behalf. So let's go to God now and ask for his spirit to give us faithfulness and to increase our love. Father, we turn to you. Um, You are a good heavenly father. We thank you for the person and work of your son, Jesus. May we love him with every fiber of our being. May our love grow for him every single day so that earthly reward, earthly approval just diminishes before us, that we wouldn't be so stuck seeking those types of things. And if you would call any of us to one day be in a situation where faithfulness would cost us something, I pray that we would in turn be faithful out of love to you and your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 10, 26 through 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Today we continue our series entitled Lessons from the Early Church. And today we will look at the beginning of the persecution of the church. What begins here is something that will continue on for 2,000 years all the way up to the present day. Right now, as I speak, hundreds of millions of Christians suffer persecution. According to the ACN, Christians face persecution in roughly 145 countries. This ultimately leads to roughly one in eight Christians falling into the persecuted category. It is important to recognize the reality of this because it can be easy to lose sight of. A large part of the body of Christ suffers the pains of persecution. They are our brothers and sisters, and they should not be forgotten. In today's passage, we will see the antecedents to all of this, things that will play out again and again throughout history, patterns that seem to reverberate throughout history's pages. So on that note, let's dig in into Acts chapter 3. Should you have looked down at that? I 